The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 1, 26-38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Thank you, Kate. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, for those of you who did miss last night's uh, Christmas uh, concert, highly encourage you, as Nate did, to uh, treat yourself to that sometime this week. It's on Christ Press's YouTube channel featuring the CPC choir, CPC musicians, as well as uh, one of our favorite musicians, uh, Melanie Penn, and then another, Michael Card. Uh, one or both of them might be familiar to many of you, but it was just a great evening. And, and so if you, if you weren't able to make it out, uh, then then uh, encourage you to do so in your living room sometime this week. Uh, welcome those of you who are here. Welcome those of you who are joining us remotely from your homes and from Christmas travel, and uh, it's just a joy to um, be able to preach one of my favorite uh, texts of Scripture. And uh, one of the reasons why I love Christmas and Advent so much is because of this young woman, Mary, who was at the time of this incident somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Isn't that something else? So uh, the history of Christianity is filled with intelligent people who also affirm things like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary. There are actually intelligent people who believe that. That includes the founders of every Ivy League university except for one, including or as well as those who founded Vanderbilt, Belmont, and Lipscomb University, Oxford, St. Andrews, etc. So you could just keep going. There are many, many smart people who believe in these 
realities that seem so unreal and that seem so unbelievable. I want to unpack that a little bit today. Now, the fact that smart people around the world and throughout history have believed these things does not necessarily prove these things to be true, but it makes it difficult for any thinking, intelligent person to just dismiss these claims without looking into it yourself. So most Sundays, if, if, you, you, know, if you attend Christ Pres regularly, you know this. Uh, if you don't, this is how we do things most Sundays. Most Sundays, I am preaching in such a way that, that assumes most people are already on board with Jesus, but that there will be still some people in the community that are eavesdropping uh, upon those who believe, but who don't believe themselves. So this week, I'm going to flip that, and my primary focus is going to be on those uh, who might regard themselves as the eavesdroppers, who might call themselves spiritually curious, or maybe even skeptical, or maybe even filled with doubt about the claims of Christianity, like Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he rose from the dead, etc. cetera. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the, the eavesdropping Christians will be encouraged, and encouraged, edified, built up in the things that you already believe. But this sermon is especially for those who aren't quite there yet. I hope that you can benefit from this in some way, shape, or form. And what I want to do in order to unpack this text in that way is to answer two questions that Mary herself, in her doubt, was asking. Number one, could this be true? And number one, what difference might it make? So first of all, could this be true. So, uh, first thing I want to say is, if you have doubt, doubt is not the opposite of faith. In fact, doubt and faith can, can, can run together and often do, and most of the time actually, do run together. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Now, Mary was a doubter in ways that her fiancé at the time, in our language, um, was not so much a doubter. Joseph had received, received the same message from the same angel as Mary had. And, and the message was, don't fear. Your virgin future bride is with child. I want you to name his name Jesus. And it says that Joseph, hearing the message, from the angel, just got up and did what the Lord commanded. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't express any doubt. He didn't seem to wrestle that much compared to Mary. Now, most people in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, take a more of a not-so-fast uh, position when something miraculous or spectacular or extraordinary is announced to them. John the Baptist might, might be one example of that, right? So he's, he's doing what he believes to be the faithful thing, and he gets thrown into prison for it. He's awaiting his own execution, and he sends message to Jesus through messengers, and the question that he sends to Jesus is this, are you the Savior that, that's always been promised, or should we be expecting somebody else? Because doesn't seem like I should be in prison right now if you are the king of everything and I'm on your side. 
So there's some doubt from John the Baptist. There's also some doubt from the man named Thomas, who was one of Jesus' 12 uh, foremost followers. And what happens around Easter, is the first Easter, is that Jesus rises from the dead. The first people who become aware of it are women who are at the tomb, and those women go and tell the disciples. And then Jesus later appears to many of the disciples, but one person is absent, and his name is Thomas. And when, when the others say, the Lord has risen from the dead, and we, we talked with him, we, we spent time with him, we've seen him, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe. I will not believe what you're telling me unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I touch him with my own fingers. And so another doubter is Mary in this instance. It says that she's greatly troubled, and she asks a question that's pretty obvious. How is this going to be since I'm a virgin? Pretty good question, right? Has it ever happened before that a virgin conceived and gave birth to a child? I don't think so. Don't think it ever happened before. I don't think it's ever happened since. So did it happen then? That was her question. And that's just the biological question. There are all sorts of other questions that, 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 that shed light on why just about anybody in that world would doubt this story. Some of the other reasons for doubt would be Mary's place of origin. She comes from a town of Nazareth, a, a small, obscure town of about 1,500 people. And, you know, if, if, if a big announcement is going to be made to the world, would you expect it to come out of a small town that most people have never heard of and about which people say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? That's the town she comes from. You're, you're going to expect a big announcement like this, though, if you're an American, to come up from a place like New York City or, or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles, or if it's maybe a music-related uh, announcement, maybe from Nashville, Tennessee. But Nazareth is not an it city. The other thing that would shed doubt on this story is Mary's youthfulness. Like I said, if you're a betrothed virgin at this time and in this season of history, it means you're somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. Now, typically, if there's a new revelation or a new insight in the synagogues and in the temples and so on, it's going to come from a seasoned prophet or a seasoned rabbi, not from a 12-year-old girl. Then another thing that would shed doubt on the story is Mary's social position, because typically people who you know, had elite access and were, the, were the, the, the gatekeepers of the cities and the towns and the villages, they would be the ones that would, um, you know, around whom these kinds of stories would emerge, and yet Mary's social position is revealed in the second chapter of Luke, where it says that she and Joseph offered a couple of birds to the temple instead of the customary lamb. Well, what's the significance of that? You know, the 12th day of Christmas song, you know, two turtle doves, it comes from there, which comes from Leviticus chapter 14, where it says, if a person cannot afford a lamb like most people, then they can offer a couple of birds in the temple when it's time to submit an offer. So she was poor. She had a social position that's unexpected. And then there's her gender. You know, one of the features of Luke's gospel is that he's constantly elevating women. 
He's constantly putting women in, in the center of the story just like Jesus had done. Women. And, you know, 21st century Americans were like, well, of course, why, why wouldn't he do this? Well, the reason why he wouldn't do this typically is that women were not highly esteemed in those days. Women were belittled. They were looked down upon. Uh, if a woman had all the facts and she was proven to have all the facts, her testimony still would not be accepted in court because of the way that society, this male-dominated, male-driven society looked down on women. And it started all the way, you know, into childhood, right? There's this record of, of, a, of a letter, you know, from an archaeology, you know, dig. There's this, this letter that a traveling Roman businessman wrote to his wife. He was on the road. She was pregnant. Uh, it was clear from the letter that she was going to, to give birth to the child before he got home from this trip. And this Roman businessman, he's, you know, just kind of cavalierly, you know, saying this or that, hope everything's well, yada, yada, yada. Oh, and by the way, if the child ends up being a boy, keep it. But if it's a girl, throw it out. Okay, so, so women were, were just demeaned and diminished during this time of history. And so, so if you're going to try to tell a convincing story in that day and age, you're, you're not going to have your first and primary witness be a woman. And the other is that she's going to be subject to the charge of blasphemy because in the Jewish community, it was inconceivable that God would inhabit a human body. God was transcendent. He was other. He's, he's holy. He's higher than. He's better than. And he's, you know, supreme. And, and you know, so fearful were, uh, you know, Mary's contemporaries of Yahweh that they wouldn't even voice his name. And they wouldn't even write his name. They would, they would only write an abbreviated version of his name and, 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 and eliminate the vowels because they, they, they didn't regard themselves as worthy enough to write his full name. And here, you know, come these Christian people saying that God has all of a sudden, you know, inhabited human flesh. And this is why Oxford scholar and atheist turned Christian, C.S. Lewis said that Christianity has to be true, and it had to be true to me, because as I looked into it, I realized that, that, that based on the historical realities of this situation, remember he's an Oxford historian, no mere human being would have invented this story. The only explanation for a story like this is it actually, had, it actually happened, and it happened in this way. And so from that and from Mary's experience and from the way that she expresses her doubt to the angel, here is a word of encouragement to us. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe these things or don't, your doubts are an asset, not a liability. They're a good thing, not a bad thing, to help you get to the truth. And so among other things, this picture of Mary, this portrait of the mother of the Son of God, encourages us not to stuff our doubts, not to shove them under the rug, but to honor them and to examine them. Parents, by the way, this is a really terrific way to parent your kids. 
by not in fear telling your kids to ignore their doubts and just believe. Instead, let's face those doubts. Let's dive right into them and let's take those doubts to the logical conclusion of what those doubts are saying and then let's put them against, up and against faith and let's see which wins. Let's see which is most logical and rational in the end. Faith or unbelief. Let's engage the question as to why so many highly intelligent people believe this stuff. But often we're going to do that through the avenues of our doubts. You know, look at this 12 to 14-year-old girl, Mary. She is actually formed into a deeper faith through a season of fierce doubting. It actually becomes, her doubt does, part of her pathway into deeper faith. It says that she is troubled by the words of God. Have you ever been troubled by the stuff that you've found in here? Maybe that's why some of us are doubters. Maybe that's why some of us are skeptics and, and, and don't want to have anything to do with faith because we know there are things in here that we don't want to deal with. Because like Mary, we are troubled with words that, that have come from God. She's troubled. And then she questions the plausibility of the situation. Again, it's a logical question. How can this be? How can I become a mother when I have never been with a man? And you know, the Greek word here you know, comes from the root dialogos, which means to logic through something, to think rationally, to assess it, to evaluate it, to scrutinize it, to investigate it, to pursue the truth with vigilance. That's what it means. That's what she's doing. Now, some of the greatest thinkers, both modern and through history, have, have talked about the virtue and the goodness of engaging our doubts in this way and, and of keeping an open mind, as it were. You know, Os Guinness is one of them. He says this about doubt. He says, doubt is normal, but doubt for the thinking person should be temporary and eventually it should get resolved because the thinking person thinks through the doubts to a conclusion. G.K. Ch Chesterton said something similar about the purpose of, a, of having an open mind. He said, having an open mind is a, lot, is a lot like having an open mouth. The whole reason why you have an open mind or an open mouth is to eventually shut it on something solid. And so what God does for Mary is he gives her some help along the way in the face of her doubts. You know, it says in, in verse 35, the Holy Spirit comes to her. And really, the Holy Spirit is the agent that enables us to really engage with, believe, trust, obey the things that God says and follow the things that God says. But he does more than this. In the 36th verse, it says that God sends her Elizabeth, a relative of her, hers who is described as being pregnant in her old age. She was old enough at this point in time, Elizabeth was, for it to be just as much of a miracle for her to have gotten pregnant with a man as it would be for the young Mary to get pregnant without one. Long past childbearing age at this time, 
Elizabeth was after decades of infertility. And then suddenly, at an older age, she's pregnant. And then, you know, the takeaway from that is in the next verse, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. God can do anything. Now, there had been a prior account from the Old Testament that both Elizabeth and Mary were familiar with, all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, where it tells us about a woman named Sarah and a man named Abraham who also dealt with infertility, painful infertility, for decades after decades after decades. And then it says, at age 100, Abraham and Sarah conceived for the first time and had a son whose name was Isaac. And so you wonder, like, wouldn't the Abraham and Sarah story be enough for Mary? She'd held it in her heart, she'd learned it, heard it spoken about all of her young life. Or maybe Mary was a lot like us, where these stories, because they're so far in the past, they actually feel more like fiction to us than they do like history. And sometimes we need God to do something more current in our time-space history to remind us that history from 2,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago was just as much history as if it happened yesterday instead of yesteryear or yester-century. Sometimes we need breakthroughs today to remind us that this stuff is all true, that this is all history. These aren't made-up fairy tales, as the Apostle Peter wrote. And Elizabeth was that real-time miracle that God sent Mary's way to enable Mary to believe in the power and miraculous intervention of God in her own story. So, okay, let's, let's engage this a little bit on a kind of a rational, logical, scientific level. I know and I resonate with why many people just flat out believe a virgin conception and birth is implausible. It doesn't square with science. It doesn't square with the way things work and the way we know things work. And, you know, if, if you're oriented toward, you know, the thinking of science and logic and reason, which I think every believing person should be, fiercely oriented towards scientific thought and logic and reason. In fact, science and logic and reason support faith, and I think that faith also supports science and logic and reason. They go together. They're not contradictory. You know, ask any, any you know, PhD or MD or, or, or chemist in, in this community or in Nashville who has come to believe in Christ as the Ivy League founders have and they will also tell you, my science supports my faith, and my faith supports my science. They're, they're not in contradiction with one another. In fact, they strengthen one another. And so here's, here's, here's the, um, here I think is the rub. Like, like people of faith, we, we've got to account for things like a man walking on water and a virgin giving birth to a child and, and, and a, a man being, you know, dead and buried for three days and then coming up from the dead. We've, we've got to have some kind of answer for that. And our answer is that there's a creator behind it all who's created all of these laws. Like you can't have a baby unless a 
husband and wife are united together in a certain way. And, and you can't walk on water because of gravity and the nature of water and the nature of human flesh. You can't do that. You can't rise from the dead because when you're dead, you're dead. But if that God can create those, those laws, and if he's powerful and great enough to create those laws, isn't he also powerful and great enough to suspend them and intervene and create exceptions for all to see in order to demonstrate that he is there? So that's how, that's how people of faith have logicked their way into these miraculous occasions. Now, I would say this. If, 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 if you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm much more of a kind of scientific, rationalist, logical person. I, I, I'm more with Darwin than I am with Genesis. So let's go there. Let's talk about origins. If everything just happened without a creator behind it, how do we account for the cosmic order? How do we account for galaxies and planets and stars and, and you know, the Milky Way? How, how do we account for gravity? How do we account for weather patterns? How do we account for all of these things? Furthermore, how do we account for fingerprints, for toenails, for the five senses, for, for hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and, and those sorts of things? How do we account for the complexity of, of an eyeball? and how an eyeball is constructed? How do we account for human intelligence and how we've been able to put somebody on the moon? How do we account for these things? If I, if I am a Darwinian with respect to origins, I have to come up with an answer to the first cause question. What caused it all? What's more likely from a logical standpoint that, that there's an intelligence behind it all, that there's, a, that there's a creator behind it all that made it happen, or that it all just made itself happen? Which is the bigger leap of faith? So, so at the very least, and I realize there's, there are also some very, very intelligent people who have settled into atheism and to the belief that the universe is a closed space that operates by certain laws that never get broken. But if that is your perspective, you have to admit, don't you, that your atheism is also a leap of faith. You have to have deep, deep faith to believe in the non-existence of God. You have to. There's no, other, there's no other way to deal with a question of origins than, than to have a deep, deep faith in something that you cannot prove. And so you got atheists and believers arguing back with each other. You can't prove it. Well, you're right. Neither can you. Well, you're right. So which is more logical? I'll, I'll leave all of us with that question. But the second question from Mary's experience, and this will be much quicker, what difference can it make? You know, there's a big ask that God is making of this girl. You are going to bear my son. That's what I want you to do. And that's code for your life's going to become really, really difficult. 12-year-old girl. People are going to do the math. 
You're going to marry Joseph, then you're going to have this baby, and they're going to do the math. Hey, you know, gestation period. That was a really short gestation period, you guys. And when you live in a small town of 1,500 people, it's not like you can hide your story from people. It's not that you can, you know, get away from the gossip or the raised eyebrows. You can't get away from it. But furthermore, when, she's a, when, when he grows up and, and he is a young adult, he's going to embarrass the whole family with his revolutionary ideas. He's going to go out into public places and into the temple, and he's going to start saying things that nobody's ever said before, radical things, like, blessed are the poor. They, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and people say all kinds of false things about you because of me. Great is your reward in heaven. And, you know, things like, you know, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves daily, take up a cross and follow me. In this world, you will, will have trouble. Trust in God. Also trust in me. Following me won't make your life easier. It'll make it a hundred times harder. He's out saying all these kinds of things. Oh, oh, and by the way, I'm God. <laughs> saying those kinds of things too. You imagine how embarrassing that's going to be to a mother and her family. And so there's this actual instance in the, in the Gospels where, where Mary and the family are looking for him, saying, come on home, man. Like, you're humiliating us. Like, come on home. And then she'll become a single, a single mother. At some point, it, it appears that she's widowed because at the cross of Christ and at the death of Christ, there is Mary, but there's no Joseph anymore. So she'll have to undergo that pain of raising this son by herself. And then she's going to have her heart busted in two, having to watch her own firstborn die, a cruel, ruthless death. And so what's her response to this invitation to suffer for the rest of her life? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your will. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be to me according to your will. It is not insignificant that God says yes, or um, that Mary says yes to God's word before she hears the rest of the story. Mary, did you know? Well, sort of. And sort of not. Like Isaiah, she said, look, before the full assignment was given, she says, here, I, here am I. Send me. I'm your servant. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Like the song says, you know, the child that, that you're going to deliver will soon deliver you. There's this overriding reality that, that becomes the cure for every fear, for everything that makes her anxious for everything that makes her scared. It's right there in verse 28. Oh, Mary, you are the favored one. The Lord is with you. And then she's moved to write poetry, which Melanie Penn said last night. If you were here, you might remember. She said it's the first contemporary Christian song that was written was, was Mary for her contemporaries when she wrote the Magnificat. I'll, I'll close this in prayer with that song. I won't sing it. Don't, don't, don't go running for the hills, but I'll read it. Two miracles happen to Mary here. The first is that God puts a child in her womb with no seed. The second is that she puts joy 
in her heart with no happy circumstances ahead of her. She says it here in verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And it's almost as if you can hear her, her heart, her sentiment echoed in Paul's words that he would write later in Romans chapter 8 where he says two things are happening right now. Number one, we're facing death all day long. And number two, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Super conquerors. Conquering conquerors. Conquering, conquering, conquering conquerors. You go to the original language, you get this, it's like five exclamation points. We are more than conquerors. Though we face death all day long, you want to be that kind of person? You want to have that kind of poise? You want to have that kind of power? You can't without Christ. You can try to jury-rig your heart for a season, but you cannot sustain this kind of joy, this kind of confidence in the face of all of the crud that this world has to throw at people. You can't. I mean, look, y'all, I've been a, I've been a I've been an ordained minister for 30 years or so, done funerals. Let me tell you, there is a vast difference than a, the, between a person who's dying with Christ and a person who's dying without Christ. There's no comparison, none. With one group, the joy just grows as the grave gets closer. With the other, the despair gets deeper and deeper, and the terror gets deeper and deeper as the grave gets closer. You cannot have this kind of poise without Christ. Fleming Rutledge, in her wonderful book on Advent, says the same Holy Spirit that was in Mary and the same promises that were given to Mary are ours also. The Mighty One can do great things for us and in us, she says. Well, don't we need a modern Elizabeth as well? Well, here they are. Here are a few examples that Rutledge unpacks, the miracles that are still happening today, the unexplainable things that are still happening today because of Christ. For example, the businessman who refuses to go along with corrupt company policies, even though those policies, if he went along with them, would make him rich. The woman who recommits to a hard marriage because it's right to do so. Social workers and teachers who remain content with their salaries. Parents who insist on limits, even when it makes their kids angry. Workers who stand for excellence in an age of declining standards. Rutledge says these are Advent people, holding their positions in spite of losses. How do you become that kind of person? Somewhere around two weeks ago, I stood here, I looked down at a 27-year-old widow who had walked with her then 27-year-old husband for two years as he suffered through leukemia. And their life became a living picture of 2 Corinthians 4 where it says the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day, as the suffering increased, as the body diminished, the honesty, things got really real. This is hard. This is terrible. We hate cancer. We hate death and suffering. And the joy grew and grew and grew and grew. You cannot jury rig that. You can't make your heart do that. 
Only Christ in you can do that. Two days ago, I'm on a phone call with, with one of my mentors who's been fighting cancer. It's a very serious form of cancer. I said, how's the fight with cancer going? He says, I've never fought cancer. The only thing I'm fighting is my own response to it. And, and he's breathing heavily, and I'm like, why are you breathing heavily? He says, I'm on the treadmill, man. It's like a 72-year-old guy with terminal cancer on a treadmill saying, I've never had a fight with cancer. What I'm fighting is the stuff in my heart that wants to respond to cancer with fear. And he says, let me, let me tell you something miraculous. My wife and I have never been happier than we are right now in this season of our life. You can't make that stuff happen in your heart. Or that, look, if you get my email, my weekly email, um, sometime this week, go in your trash uh, from your email and, and call up the one that I sent you last week. Because it's got a video with a girl not much older than the Virgin Mary from Houston, Texas, giving a eulogy for her father who had been shot in the line of duty just a couple of days prior by a criminal. He was a police officer. Here's an excerpt from that masterful eulogy from a young girl who's somewhere in her mid-teens. Home has felt lonely without him. There is no heavier surprise than to receive a call that your dad has been shot and killed. It will be a day I'll never forget. There's been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. Part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father, but I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. All I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. My prayer is that sometime down the road, I'll get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but to tell him about Jesus. Let's just say you're unconvinced by the rational part of this. If there's anything on earth that ought to lead us to doubt our doubts and maybe even to deconstruct our doubts. It's stories like this. It's realities like this that are real in the world and they are real-time, present-day that affirm that stories like Mary and Sarah could also be true because this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. And yet it does. Christ in someone else, the hope of glory, can also become Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what Christmas is all about. God accomplishing great, extraordinary things in the lives of average, ordinary, and sometimes down and out people. That's what Advent is all about. You can't make this stuff happen in your heart but he can. Won't you come to Christ even as we are led now by the prayer of Mary, the 12-year-old? Let's pray. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 